Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to see you. This is our last class of forms of meditation. So it's the one I'm the most um, uh, sort of um, apprehensive about, I would say, because it's uh, very challenging, uh, this topic. So in our classes so far, we've been exploring concentration practices, investigation of dharmas and heart-centered practices, you know, metta and lojong phrases and slogans in the Brahma Viharas. <clears throat> so these forms of meditation train our minds so that our flashlight of attention becomes reliably steady and focused, bright and clear, so that it can illuminate our lives and our relationships. We can readily bring our full attention where we intend to and keep it there. In an emergency with the power out, a flashlight is useless if it is not charged, if it flashes around randomly, if we can't hold on to it or direct where we need direct it where we need the light. So concentration practices cultivate this capacity to skillfully manage our attention so that we can use it as needed. We're then able to use that focused attention to investigate the Buddha's teachings, as well as all of the other phenomena in our lives with some depth and clarity. All of these forms of meditation involve, as Dogen said, taking a backward step and turning our light within. With meta practice, we then turn the light of attention outward, expressing our aspiration for well-being and liberation for all beings as a kind of floodlight of awareness radiating everywhere. And these forms of meditation engage us in doing all of them from following the breath to investigating koans, to repeating metaphrases or radiating equanimity. This week, we have only one form of meditation to explore, although it goes by different names and is taught in different ways. It is not a practice of doing, but a practice of being. In Japanese Zen, the term for it is shikantaza, but you may also hear it referred to as open awareness or just sitting. Those terms are not quite accurate, but are commonly used to refer to this practice. So the practice um, in our, at least in our uh, Zen tradition can be traced back to Chan Master Hongzhir, known in Japanese as Tendo Shogaku, one of our Zen ancestors, who lived from 1091 to 1157. So he, he was well known to Dogen and Dogen even um, quotes and paraphrases Hongzhir in some of his writing. He was the author of the Book of Serenity the collection of koans um, that we use in Soto Zen practice. And we talked about that when we talked about koans. His term for it was silent illumination. So Hongzhir is also known for writing that we've included in our chant book titled On Silent Illumination. So maybe we can read that together and we'll have a little bit uh, um, better sense of what we're talking about. I think I can share the screen. Can you see it? Does it need to be bigger, Maria? 
It, it's, I can read it. Maybe one more. Just give it one more. Warm. Okay, so. One bigger, yeah. How's that? That's better, yeah. Better? Okay. So let's read this together um, and, uh, and get a sense of this, uh, this way of practice. On silent illumination. Wide and far-reaching without limit. Pure and clean, it emits light. Its spiritual potency is unobscured. Although it is bright, there are no objects of illumination. It can be said to be empty, yet this emptiness is full of luminosity. It illumines in self-purity beyond the working of causes and conditions, apart from subject and object. Its wondrousness and subtleties are ever present. Its luminosity is also vast and open. Moreover, this is not something that can be conceived of as existence or non-existence, nor can it be deliberated about with words and analogies. Right here at this pivotal axle, opening the swinging gate and clearing the way, it is able to respond effortlessly to circumstances. The great function is free from hindrances. At all places, turning and turning about, it does not follow conditions, nor can it be trapped in models. In the midst of everything, it settles securely. With that, it is identical to what that is. With this, it is identical to what this is. This and that interfuse and merge without distinction. Therefore, it is said, like the earth that holds up a mountain, unaware of its steepness and loftiness, like the stone that contains jade, unaware of the flawlessness of the jade. If one can be thus, this is truly leaving home. People who have left home must get hold of the essence in this way. Patch-robed monks should wither away and freeze the deluded thoughts of the mind and rest from remnant conditioning. Single-mindedly, restore and cultivate this field. Directly cut down all the overgrown grass throughout the boundary of the four directions. Do not allow a single speck of dust to defile this field. Spiritually potent, it is bright, vast, and removed. It is transparent. Thoroughly illumine that which comes before the principal essence until you reach a state where the light becomes naked and pure, where not a single speck of dust can be attached to. When you tug and pull back this ox mind by the nose, it will naturally come alive and be imposing, being quite unusual and outstanding. It mingles with others along the pathway without damaging people's sprouts and grain. Thriving and dynamic, the ox effortlessly responds to circumstances. Responding to circumstances without artificiality, it thrives and is free flowing. Not fixed to any set place, it is free from fetters. This is the place where the ox plows through the field of the empty kalpa. Proceeding in such a way, all things appear vividly without obscurity. Everywhere, all things manifest as they are. 
maintaining one thought for 10,000 years. Fundamentally, this is non-abiding in appearances. It is said, the mind ground contains every seed. The rain will universally cause them to sprout. When the meaning of the blossoming of the flower of enlightenment is understood, the fruit of the Bodhi will ripen of its own accord. Being empty, it leaves no trace. In illumination, there are no dusts of, of emotion. When the light penetrates, stillness is profound. Mysteriously, it severs all defects and defilement. When you can thus understand yourself, you can thus resolve yourself. Clear and pure, wondrous and bright, this field is intrinsically yours. Many lifetimes of inability to resolve this matter of self-grasping only come from obscuring doubts and hovering delusions. All these are but self-created obstructions and blocks. Openly, wisdom freely roams. Internally, one forgets merits and rewards. Just directly relinquish this burden of the self. Turn around and resume your position. Put your feet firmly on the path. In this spontaneous responsiveness and wondrous function, all things encountered are reality. Here, there's not a single thing from the tiniest hair to a speck of dust outside yourself. This is from one of our, uh, our favorite um, sources, The Method of No Method, The Chan Practice of Silent Illumination by Shenyan. <clears throat> so, well, there you are. That's all the teaching you need, right? <laughs> As you can see, Hongzhir is really describing this quality of silent illumination, but not providing some kind of instruction for training or practice. In a sense, there's no way to teach this form of meditation which is simply practice and sitting with full awareness and awake, open experience of your life in this present moment, in this world with its sensations and mind waves, emotions and consciousness, without clinging to anything, without aversion to anything projected on the screens of the mind and the body. We're not making anything happen. We're unhindered in simply and directly experiencing this present moment. It is not passive or dull, but alive and engaged. We treat our mind's activity with kindly regard as if watching a puppy dashing about, smelling this, chewing that, curled up in sleep, noticing it's about to pee and time to take it outdoors. I have some small experience of this. Nothing in our experience is lasting. Nothing is substantial. Nothing represents who we really are. Our confusion about these facts causes suffering for ourselves and for others. But more importantly, it causes us to miss our own lives. The past year has been like a fever dream, surreal and disturbing, yet filled with beauty and kindness as well. But how much of it swept by us unnoticed? Many people believe in meditation as a way to attain some peak experience, the ultimate example of which is awakening 
But every moment of life, even an insect's life, is precisely that peak experience, often unknown and unclaimed because we're too busy worrying about other imaginary things. The world is real, we are real, but not in the ways we imagine them. For example, we are permeable beings, not the solid aging bodies we take ourselves to be. At this very moment, cell phone waves are passing right through you, carrying photos of a new grandchild, a bit of pop music, a teenager's text, some racist propaganda, an email about a project in someone's office. In your home, not only to your own body's cells, but far more cells that are bacteria and viruses, beneficial and hazardous, some permanently resident, others easily moving in and out with your breath, through your skin, via the food you're eating, your kiss, your intense immersion in your world. No one can factually speak of I, me, mine. Everyone is in the plural, they, them, theirs. So we sit in Zen practice, doing nothing, just being there in the midst of our lives. We sit and wonder. That said, there are ways to approach this formless meditation practice. I was kind of surprised to discover in Analeo's Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Meditation, that this practice can really be tra traced back to the original teachings of the Buddha. In the Pali Kulasunyata Sutta, the Buddha teaches the gradual meditative entry into emptiness, an advanced form of practice. So the Buddha was responding to Ananda asking about a statement the Buddha had made, dwelling on emptiness. In the Sutta, the Buddha patiently explains a sequence for contemplation of emptiness that begins with the very room in which they're staying, pointing out that it was empty of the hustle and bustle of city life, and also empty of domesticated animals and people. Instead of these, there was just the community of monks. So the Buddha sets the format for this series of contemplation as seeing what a particular experience is empty of, and at the same time, also directing awareness to what this experience is not empty of. In this case, the dwelling place was not empty of monks. So this is not a, um, a nihilist view that nothing exists. It's not about having a blank mind or entering some kind of void. The contemplation moves out from this intimate space and in the next step, the Buddha teaches contemplation of the forest, leaving behind the contemplation of the space in the room. And then the next step is a contemplation of the earth itself with all of its features stripped away as if the earth is level and flat as the palm of a hand. Then from there, the contemplation of infinite space, then infinite consciousness, and finally the perception of the sphere of nothingness. He says, whatever is not present, one therefore sees as empty. Whatever else is present, one sees as truly present. Ananda, this is called truly dwelling in emptiness without distortion. So these instructions are detailed and sequential. Um, and if you'd like to read more about these teachings and how contemplation of emptiness is linked to compassion, I highly recommend Analeo's book, which is um, Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Meditation. There are three chapters on this contemplation of emptiness and they're very thorough. And it's very helpful in understanding, oh, this is what the Buddha's intentions were in this teaching.
John Masters cut right to the chase, which is refreshing, even though it can be a bit disorienting. Practice is not sequential, it's not step, step by step. And so how do we practice Zazen? We still need an approach. So as the Lojong slogan, slogan suggests, first, resolve to begin. You need to do this in every session. It's extremely important. You don't wanna just flop down on your cushion carelessly, ready to check off something else off your to-do list with your mind a stew of feelings and ideas. Each Zazen period is a new beginning. So resolve to begin. First, train in the preliminaries. Well, what are the preliminaries? I've been uh, very, very uh, enchanted with uh, Guo Gu's book on silent illumination. Um, and in it, he talks about the first thing is to understand your intention. What is my intention for my meditation practice? In this case, an intention is not a goal or an outcome. It's more like an approach or orientation to something. So let's pause right here. If you have some paper and a pencil or pen handy, just think about, reflect a little bit and see if you can write just a couple of sentences about your own intention for this practice.
So you may not be quite finished, but this is something to consider at the start of any practice period. Um, and it may be something that's consistent for you, or it may be something that changes um, as variable uh, from time to time. So, um, so I'm just wondering if anyone would like to share what, uh, whatever reflections they had about this. So just raise your hand if you would like to share something of your experience. Yeah. It would help to go into gallery view as well to see everyone. And yeah. if you raise your hand, Peg, it will keep you in the top left-hand corner while other people ask questions and move around. It'll just keep you in one place. Let's see. There we go. <laughs> I'll just keep you up there. <laughs> I'm one of you. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so Kim. You have, you have to unmute yourself. There you go. This parallels something I said about 50 or 60 years ago when um, we were asked for an intention in a photography class. And I said um, to not something about to not have to take pictures, but to always be in this awakened state. Uh -huh. And so what I wrote here was, my intention is to not have to have to practice, but to continually be in an, in an awakened state without even trying. I just want to be there without any effort. So that to me also is, is kind of my understanding of Shikantaza. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's effortless effort. Hard work. <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to let go of our expectations of what it should be. Yeah, very difficult. Joel. Uh, what I have written for my intention, uh, in, or uh, everything is already splintering apart here, but to be awake to the wonder of this existence uh, and awake to the process or processes that are carrying me forward moment by moment that are it's the processes that are unfolding and, you know, carrying me along. Uh, be, to be awake to my connections uh, within my mind, parts holding other parts in loving kindness, and to others, uh, and uh, and then to know some to to be able to contact or be aware of the space that everything I I know or can know of. Uh, is arising within mm. and I, 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 I list those because I have had some experience of actually having those those uh, awarenesses arise within whatever the awareness is so yeah so your intention is to foster that yes uh-huh yeah that's great Richie Hey, I, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Um, I, I just wrote uh, to calm and bring some balance and lucidity to my mind, uh, some equanimity, uh, to become resilient to the changing states of mind and not react or be fussed by them, to become kinder to myself and others, to let go of the story of self and uh, freedom from suffering. Uh, that's what I wrote. 
this like something you were saying to do before every meditation, just sit and have a reflection on why you're doing it. Just, just notice what is my intention here? Mm. Um, because often we just sort of plunge in without taking the time to stop, say, okay, what is my intention for this sitting? Yeah, and I, I think that's a very important step, actually. It sort of orients us. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's a great set of intentions. Ready? Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I this is wonderful experience for me because I intended to be with my mind, explore what is there and explore the self and the relations, you know, with the others. The other means everything, everything else. Mm -hmm. And I was quite uh, intrigued. I mean, this is like a direct experience of what I have been doing lately, you know, and just uh, finding it very interesting. And the emotion has been a joy. And, you know, I mean, I, I am just, uh, you know, it's, it's very happiness, you know, joy. And uh, as if, you know, I'm discovering how to meditate, actually. <laughs> that is my, you know, being, uh, you know, having ups and downs and, you know, yeah. questioning myself and questioning the method that I am using. But this particular one, I think is probably very correct. And what is, what is, I, what, are, what, is what is it that I need to know <laughs> in my my life or mm -hmm. it keeps us pointed in the right direction right i think so i think it has been very very helpful mm. lately <laughs> just <laughs> put it very bluntly and mm -hmm. yeah good summary summary yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great that's good to hear and joy is one of the seven factors of awakening so you're you're right there right Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So Lisa. You're you're still muted. Um I I had a thought the other day, a couple of days ago, I don't remember what it was, that the greatest power in the world is love. And it's not that I haven't had that thought before, but it struck me. I, I think then I thought about the Buddha and meditation. So that gave me an intention with my meditation that maybe my meditation will help me be able to love more fully. And that's, that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> so that's what I wrote down. And that's what I'm curious about at this point is how can my meditation help me to be a more compassionate force in the world, I think. Yeah. So you have to be careful about that. We warned about that in the meta class, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it means that you're attaching to an ideal that is not who you are now, but some better self that you'll be in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's um, 
that's sort of a source of unnecessary su suffering, you know, because you're separating yourself from that ideal, which will never be reachable because that's the way ideals are, right? right. Um, and we sometimes think that our nobility is in striving for an ideal, right? That that's what makes us good is that we're striving to be better people, right? Mm. That isn't what makes us good. That's what makes us strivers. Yeah. And so it, may, it, it inherently carries dissatisfaction with the present moment experience. And with yeah. who you are right now, you know, you don't need to what? be more passionate. You don't need to be more loving. That's an opinion. Yeah, my internet just went unstable. So I missed a few a piece right before that. Where I said, you don't need to be more loving. You don't. Yeah, right. Yeah, right along there. Yeah, that's all already there. So the striving to be more of something or better of something or some towards some idealist is just a source of suffering. I think it's a sense of unblocking that I know it's already there, but it can get blocked. That capacity true. can get blocked. Not so much yeah. blocked as it's obscured. Yeah. It's like yeah. clouds covering the sun. The sun is still there. You don't need a bigger sun, a better sun, because they're clouds. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, we in practice, what we discover is that um, that capacity to see beyond that uh, obscuration or whatever is, um, you know, we talk about hindrances. In, in, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the hindrances are what really tend to cloud our vision. Yeah, I, 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 th I think of it in terms of just being curious about what's happening in my mind. Yeah, and, yeah, and that, that'll be part of the uh, attitudes we talk about in, in a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that friendly curiosity is our biggest, uh, I think. Um, I always think of it as uh, a universal solvent. It dissolves obscurities. It dissolves hindrances. Mm -hmm. um, it dissolves um, obstacles in our relationships with others. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, um, it's funny when I first signed up um, to do this course. You know, my idea was, you know, <laughs> you know how like Neo in the Matrix, he got the code and. <laughs> you know, really seriously like i wanted to be you know neil see the coding to let go of attachment and you know be zen and honestly is in you asking this question i realized that over the last few weeks i have been more um mindful or deliberate in my interactions there is a pause that um like in anything i actually take an assessment of what i'm thinking or feeling and i'll say oh <laughs> i'm assigning you know a value to something and so i just realized that it's been happening without knowing right it's only because you asked the question that and I, I took stock that I realized that I've actually been 
doing these things. There's a pause and there's, and, and in that pause, I realized that I'm, hmm, I'm not taking things personally, you know, like there's a lot going on in my head right now. <laughs> but anyway, the point is- That's quite I, helpful. That's quite helpful not to take things personally. Yeah. about you. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, that that's what I wanted to say that there is a pause that I realized that I've been um, engaging in because of that, taking assessment of what I'm thinking or feeling and going it forward you, to that point. It gives you a, a little measure of freedom. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, Thank that's you. wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. <clears throat> Claudine. Well, I will try in English. Uh, you know, for me, it was almost a question of, of sensation to feel it inside. And I think that it was to offer, to offer myself space an inner space to to be able then to respond instead of react and soften the hindrance, as you said, and also give peace to the others. <laughs> Meaning when I react, I think it's very annoying or painful for the others. So, oh, okay, give them space as well. And feel that space if you understand what I mean because when we stop suddenly it's the same thing when I am walking in the forest near my house that I'm calling my sanctuary and put my foot there and suddenly there is this space inside mm. and that's my that's what I would like to that's my intention. That's what I would like to to realize, to find in Zazen. Yeah. Okay. I think this is that space the Buddha was talking about. The space that we we realize is the the emptiness with just the things that are actually there, and we recognize what's actually there. So. Um, so there's, we're creating a space both internally and, and externally. You're exactly right. I mean, Joko talked about this as creating a simplified space. Zazen is creating a simplified space. Mm. That is, we reduce some of our activity, some of our distractions, so that we can um, be, in, be aware in a, in a sort of simplified environment, right? We're sitting on the cushion. It's a very simplified environment. Um, and that's, that can be helpful when we want to really study how we're conditioning ourselves, how we're experiencing the world. That's yeah, great. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, <clears throat> so the next uh, step of preparation, training in the preliminaries, uh, Guo Gu talks about as um, uh, feeling tones and attitudes. So we do a check, just a check-in. Um, once we uh, sort of understand what our intention is, uh, we do a check-in for 
um, feeling tones, which are sort of subtle background influences in our minds, intentions, concerns that shape our choices and our perceptions. So he says, once we've exposed negative feeling tones, we can foster correct attitudes that resonate with our original freedom. It's exactly what uh, Claudine was talking about, right? Now, many of our subtle tendencies are hidden from our awareness. This is true. If we're unaware of what's going on inside us, simply practicing seated meditation won't take us too far along the road to liberation. This is why many practitioners after years of meditation wonder why it is that they are still vexed by the same people and events in their lives. How can it be that in seated meditation, they are able to gain peace, but in the busyness of life, they are basically the same people. If we don't expose the subtle tendencies that govern the way we practice and in turn cultivate correct attitudes, we inevitably perpetuate separateness, opposition, and self-referential thinking. These subtle undercurrent tendencies manifest as the attitudes we have toward life. We need to expose them and cultivate the right attitudes to bring out our wisdom and compassion. So what does Gogu think are the right attitudes and how do we cultivate them? So first of all, there's a process he talks about, a fourfold process of exposing, embracing, transforming, and letting go. He says, when practitioners come across the familiar Buddhist teaching of non-grasping, which you no doubt have come across, they think that they have to let go of everything, that this is something they can do right away, and that once they've done so, everything will be fine. We have to expose our subtle emotional afflictions and negative habits. In exposing them, oh, he says the truth is, we have to first see what it is that we have to let go of. So we have to expose our subtle emotional afflictions and negative habits. And in exposing them, we may recognize that they have been part of us for a long time, that there is a history behind our behaviors. They may be part of our defense mechanisms and survival skills. So we have to accept them. Only when we accept them will we be able to take responsibility for and work through them. Then we will no longer be under their influence. This is letting go of them. This is a long process and it is not linear, but circular. So what are these attitudes he thinks of as essential to practice? The first one is contentment. Now contentment is a very difficult thing in our modern society because everything is conditioning us to grasp and chase after things, right? Even in meditation, we're trying to get somewhere, trying to accomplish something, trying to do something. Um, and contentment is the opposite of that. I'm completely contented. This is an attitude to cultivate, completely contented, right here, right now. This is completely, completely fine. The second attitude is interest which is the quality of engagement that is not controlling or manipulating your experience in any way. So you just have this interest. We're interested in what's, what's gonna happen in this meditation period. If we don't have interest, we're sort of sinking into this sort of dullness and apathy and torpor and you know, now we're just resting. We're not actually meditating. <clears throat> so the third quality uh, or attitude that needs to be cultivated is confidence. 
This is a, sort of a blend of faith, conviction, and trust that's based on experience, not blind belief. So sometimes difficult to have confidence. You encounter rocky patches in your meditation or you, um, you're not really sure um, whether it's, and, and, uh, and this brings up the notion of doubt. You sometimes doubt, are these teachings for real? Or you doubt yourself. Yeah, maybe some people can do this practice, but maybe I can't, you know, maybe I don't have what it takes. You have to um, cultivate that confidence. Millions and millions of people of every kind have benefited from this kind of meditation. So um, certainly you can do it um, and you can have confidence that you can at least, as Joko says, do the experiment for yourself and see what happens. So you have confidence that you can at least do the practice. And then the fourth quality is determination. So there's a kind of warning label on this too, because we sometimes think of determination as striving or intense effort, um, which is actually something that's fueled by greed or anger, as Gogo points out. He says, determination is about being steadfast, trickling on like a fine stream in a continuous flow that does not end. Even when a big boulder is in the way, the stream simply meanders around it and continues. So a Chan analogy for determination is a continuous stream of water without gaps, without seams. So we've connected with our intention. We've cultivated these attitudes. We're still in the preliminaries, right? We're still in the preliminaries at the very, very beginning of our meditation practice. The next thing to attend to then is our posture. And posture in Zen, since Zen is an embodied practice and not a mental practice, is extremely important. So one of the great um, uh, uh, explanations of posture in Zen is in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. This is my original book from I think 1970. It was $2.95 then. <clears throat> so what he says, Suzuki, about posture is um, quite clear, quite straightforward. He says the most important thing in taking the zazen posture is to keep your spine straight, as straight as you're able to anyway. Your ears and your shoulders should be on one line, so lined up. Relax your shoulders and push up towards the ceiling with the back of your head. This ensures that you have this upright position. And you should um, pull your chin in. If you're sticking out like this, you're gonna get a sore neck or a sore back. When your chin is tilted up, you have no strength in your posture. You are probably dreaming. Also to gain strength in your posture, press your diaphragm down towards your hara or lower abdomen. <clears throat> this will help you maintain your physical and mental balance. When you try to keep this posture, at first you may find some difficulty breathing naturally. But when you get accustomed to it, you will be able to breathe naturally and deeply. Your hands should form the cosmic mudra. If you put your left hand on top of your right, middle joints of your middle fingers together and touch your thumbs lightly together as if you held a piece of paper between them, your hands will make a beautiful oval. You should keep this universal mudra with great care as if you were holding something very precious in your hand. 
Your hand should be held against your body with your thumbs at about the height of your navel. Hold your arms freely and easily and slightly away from your body as if you held an egg under each arm without breaking it. So this is a, um, a wonderful thing, this little cosmic mudra is a wonderful thing to check back in with during your meditation. Is it, is it flopped over? Is it pressed together? Um, is it still maintaining that beautiful, soft oval? You should not be tilted sideways, backwards or forwards. You should be sitting straight up as if you were supporting the sky with your head. This is not just form or breathing. It expresses the key point of Buddhism. It is a perfect expression of your Buddha nature. If you want true understanding of Buddhism, you should practice this way. These forms are not a means of obtaining the right state of mind. To take this posture itself is the purpose of our practice. When you have this posture, you have the right state of mind. So there is no need to try to attain some special state. When you try to attain something, your mind starts to wander. When you do not try to attain anything, you have your own body and mind right here. A Zen master would say, kill the Buddha. Kill the Buddha if the Buddha exists somewhere else. Kill the Buddha because you should resume your own Buddha nature. Doing something is expressing our own nature. We do not exist for the sake of something else. So I love this um, you know, very practical instruction in uh, taking the posture of Zazen, this upright and dignified posture. And my um, teacher, Joko, would teach us to um, sit as though there's a, a string attached to our sternum that's lifting up and our body is like warm wax that's melting back. So, so there's this, this lifting at the sternum. I like that a little better than craning up the head which can lead to some tension in the neck. But if you're lifting from the sternum, um, then your head will naturally come into alignment. So I found that a, a pretty good practice. And in, in the Alexander method uh, that's used by many dancers and musicians, they talk about balancing the head up on top of the neck so that the spine can lengthen and soften, which is very good instruction also. So posture is quite important. And we can check in periodically during our meditation period just to see how that, uh, how that posture is going. So Jay, did you have a question? Yeah, I, I do have a question. And um, so uh, when they were talking about the body positions, mm -hmm. those are what I know as um, in yoga as bandhas or body locks, is that you know um, the same thing? Um, the Buddha trained in all of those um, sort of practices. Okay. But this is, a, this is about complete release. It's not about any locks. So nothing is really locked up. No, I, I understand. But, but like when they said um, the neck, pull the chin in, the head up, that's a, what they call, um, well, in Kundali, Kundalini yoga, like a neck lock. But it's the same description. That's why I'm oh, asking. Wow. Even the... Yeah, uh, yeah. The pelvic, you know, pulling up the pelvic into uh -huh. is also like a pelvic, it's called a banda, or what they in English it says a lock, but it's not yeah. necessarily Just a lock. hold, really. You're not really you're not really trying to hold anything. Right. But uh, but yes, yeah, some of these I'm I'm quite sure that some of these teachings 
um, originated, you know, sort of co-determining each other. Um, so the Buddha was familiar with these emerging yoga practices and trained in them, um, but he, he's not teaching yoga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, but these postures have been established for literally thousands of years, even a couple thousand years before the Buddha, the cross-legged meditation, typical cross-legged meditation posture has been taught um, for eons um, as a, um, a, a way to attain stability and relaxation uh, in an upright and awake way. So I think that's always been the, the sense of it, that we're awake. So for some people, the cross-legged postures are not really possible because of their anatomy or because of injuries or whatever. Um, and the um, sitting in a chair posture then is, uh, uh, offers that stability. So you still have three points, your seat and two feet on the floor. Um, and those three points give stability. You still want to be upright and it's better if you're sitting in a chair not to be leaning against the back because you will get a sore, sore back that way. But to sit upright. Um, and, um, and that posture is not something um, that we uh, maintain by stiffness or by, by any kind of tension. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but actually just a way, um, uh, a, a kind of way to make the body still and coherent is basically what you're interested in. That, that posture that's um, typically demonstrated, the cross-legged posture, half lotus or lotus position, um, give us the greatest potential for stillness, which is what we'd like to do is quiet the body activity. So every time the body moves, we're jerking our mind around too with it. So, um, so the more stillness we can allow our bodies to rest in, the more we can turn our attention and our awareness to our meditation practice. So does that make sense so far? Um, so now we're up to the posture. So we're maybe, you know, a minute and a half into our meditation and we're still in the preliminaries. Um, and then once you're seated that way in an upright and dignified and balanced posture with an attitude of contentment, interest, confidence, and determination, it is most important to completely relax the body. Tension and contraction in the body are obstructions to meditation. So obviously this relaxation cannot be rushed, which just comes from agitation and creates more tension. That said, it's, it's very challenging in the beginning of practice because the body's not accustomed to sitting in this way. And uh, when I first started practicing, I asked uh, Joko's senior student, Elizabeth, so is there any point you get to where um, meditation doesn't hurt? And she said, well, I think about after 10 years, yeah, about 10 years. So, so I was horrified at the time, but now I'm sort of, you know, well past that 10 year mark. And I can say um, the body resists and some of that resistance is psychological. Um, and some of that resistance is just unfamiliarity. So once the body becomes familiar with the posture, then the sort of various aches and pains that we have tend to be um, psychological kinds of resistance or emotional kinds of resistance, which may be quite um, subtle to us. But, um, but let it be said that the ego is never too satisfied with the idea that we might be able to see through it. So some, uh, some tension arises. Uh, but 
we practice with that. So, so we can try this. So sit upright and balanced on your chair, on your cushion. I'm on a little stool here. Um, but make sure that either both feet are on the floor or both knees are on the mat, that you have a kind of a triangular base there. Um, arouse then, when you have this stability, arouse the attitudes of contentment. and interest. And confidence. And determination. Now we begin a slow, progressive relaxation. Beginning with the awareness of the crown of the head. making sure all tension is released. All of the hair follicles are relaxed. Then moving to the forehead, where we often hold some unconscious tension, releasing any tiny contractions at the temples. down to the eyes with their many small muscles. Simply release any tension you discover there. Muscle by muscle. And now moving down to your cheeks and jaw another common place of tension and holding. Now your mouth, teeth and gums completely relax until you can feel your whole face is entirely at ease. Continue with the back of the head, the ears, the top of the spine, releasing and relaxing, allowing ease and comfort there. Moving very slowly down the throat and neck, balancing the head so easily and comfortably. Down to your shoulders, the collarbone, the arm sockets. Muscles and tendons completely relaxing. Nothing to do. The body in balance and at rest. Your upper arms growing soft and at ease. 
your elbows and forearms releasing any tension. Your wrists softening. Your hands still and quiet in your lap. Fingers and thumbs completely relaxed. Now feel your upper body, lungs gently swelling, relaxing, swelling again, like gentle waves lapping the shore. Your shoulder blades melt down your back, utterly relaxed. And in that way, your chest opens and breathing becomes easier, more full. Your belly now relaxing completely, not sucked in, all tension releasing as you bring your awareness there. Your lower back slightly curved, is relaxing as your body finds its natural balance and poise. And the base of your body, pelvis and buttocks are also releasing any tension, stable and firmly connected to your seat, which supports you with the whole Earth's gravity. Your thighs can rest without contraction or stiffness, completely at ease, nothing to do, nowhere to go. Moving on, your knees relax, your lower leg with its calf muscles resting comfortably. Your ankles, feet, and toes can rest in ease. The whole body now entirely relaxed. As you do this preliminary scan and release, you may notice some places that are more stuck than others some that were not able to completely release their tension or contraction. When you practice this, you should feel comfortable to stay with those places a bit longer or to return to the beginning and repeat the process. You may find this work with relaxation can fill an entire meditation period, especially in the beginning, but ultimately, you will find it much easier and quicker as your body learns how to relax itself at will. And you may find yourself in situations where this knowledge alone may serve to put you at ease so that you can meet the situation skillfully, wisely, and compassionately. It's part of the teaching that they do for uh, fighter pilots and uh, helping them learn how to sleep at will. 
because they never know when they're going to get an, a, a chance to sleep and their, their lives are filled with tension and, uh, and difficulty and challenges. So, um, so this is part of the training they get. So any um, reflections about that part of the preliminaries? You may have your own favorite method for this whole body relaxation. The main thing is not a particular way of doing it, but that you are able to completely be completely relaxed. And that uh, wherever you notice any tension or holding, that you bring your awareness to that, releasing that uh, so that your body can be relaxed. This surprised me because I always felt like um, a Zen practice should be about trying really hard, like everything else, right? I just, just, you just have to try really, really hard. And, um, and so this was a surprising kind of instructions, complete relaxation. So any reflections about that process? Okay, um, so then continuing on, this is completely relaxed body and with this, these attitudes um, and um, the sense of contentment and this sense of interest and this sense of confidence and the sense of determination, then we turn our attention to following the breath, which is the initial instruction in uh, most Zazen teaching. Um, we're contented with our breath. Our body's relaxed. We're interested in each breath, confident and determined in the practice. So each breath is unique. Each breath is life-giving. And the quality of our breathing reflects the quality of our lives moment to moment. It's something we can attune with anytime in our everyday lives. It's ready to hand always, right? Breathing in, we breathe in the whole universe. Breathing out, we express our whole living being. So then we relax even the activity of following the breath and allow breathing to become just another sensation in the body. What else is there? Warmth, energy, sense perceptions, sounds, colors, the felt sense of the body itself and the immediate surroundings, the cool air, the space around you in the room and permeating all of the things there. And this immediate space is opening out to the larger spaces around it, a forest, a neighborhood, a city, an ocean. And your awareness expands there, carried on the light breeze of your breathing. This moment too moves beyond just a few seconds, filling this day and expanding outward to this week, this month, this lifetime, many lifetimes for many beings. Now all of that just falls away. No need to hold on to it, just resting in it. Immersed, contented, interested, confident, determined simply to relax and be present right now. These are the preliminaries that sort of prepare us. And now we, um, we have this awareness and what we discover is just how fluid and expansive our awareness can be. 
that when it's not stuck somehow, it can be intentionally accessed and developed. It becomes a resource for our journey on this spiritual path and we learn how to use it. So here's a little experiment we can do with that, uh, a little experiment in awareness. So if you sit comfortably without straining, bring your awareness to the center of your chest, the heart area. You can probably feel your heart beating, your lungs gently expanding and contracting. Notice any sensations you experience in that area. They may be obvious or quite subtle, or you may not notice anything at all. Just be aware without judging or straining in any way, completely relaxed. Now allow your awareness to float backward out of the back of your body so that you are aware of yourself sitting there as if you are watching from behind you. Allow your awareness to travel above to a corner of the room in front of you, up in the ceiling, taking in your body and the whole room. Can your awareness move even further? Of course, it can move out of the room into the outer world with its noises, neighbors, trees, roads, and larger network, fields, forests, traffic, sewer systems, and beyond, filling the sky with awareness of clouds, weather, sunrise, the moon, the distant stars, the whole cosmos. And now slowly returning from that journey back into the neighborhood, this room, your body and breath. Just this moment. So I'm very curious whether you found yourself able to move your awareness in those ways. Um, so, if you have any reflections about that, <clears throat> raise your hand.
Gardez ça. You're, you're still muted. There we go. Okay. Um, this is just a question. Mm -hmm. are, are we playing with states of consciousness when we're doing this? What do you think states of consciousness are? Well, the, the thing about going behind yourself and then sort of going into a corner of the room made me think of dissociation um, from a psychological perspective. When people dissociate, they feel like they're out of their body. And mm -hmm. so that just made, made me wonder about- Yeah, that perspective um, isn't itself um, that kind of dissociation, psychological dissociation. Right. It's taking a different perspective. If you got stuck there, yeah. then you might worry, right? That that's, that, 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 that's a dissociated state. Um, yeah. So, okay. um, so it's really, it's, it's the capacity to expand awareness, to take a larger perspective or perspective from another orientation. And mm -hmm. in um, Zen practice, we often say that Zen is a perspectival. That is, we have the capacity to occupy another person's perspective, understand it completely. Um, it doesn't mean that we lose our sense of our own position mm -hmm. so much as we have that capacity then, right? Which gives us flexibility, it gives us response flexibility, and it gives us also perspective flexibility, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So like when you go to another culture and you discover that people think in a different way, I mean, just the the language itself shapes the way they think, right? Mm -hmm. So you, um, you, you can, um, you know, for whatever period you're in another culture, you can begin to uh, apprehend that perspective, mm -hmm. right? Okay, yeah. So we're, we're simply making that intentional and not some accidental, you know, shifts of awareness. So I think in dissociation, it's not intentional. Right. It's not something right. the person intends to do. Right. Right. Okay. And then they get stuck and lost in it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this is okay. a little bit different in that it's both intentional and it's not pathological in any way. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Yeah. So, Ellen. Well, uh, the thing I've appreciated the very most that I've heard today is uh, what Joko said about the string lifting upright, but the melting downward, it seems so balancing, such a balanced yeah. uh, posture opposed to if you're just focused on the upward, right. that become uh, tension, you know, but to have, it, it seems like a balancing of energy, you know, to have the string upward and, and right. melting like wax. I, I'm going to really use that a lot. It's been very helpful for me over the years, you know, I, um, I return to it again and again, as just a little, uh, it's like a little touchstone that, um, mm -hmm. that helps me a lot in my practice. And sometimes I'll notice I've sort of collapsed, you know, and one of the things I've noticed about um, the, working with the breath is that we collapse on the out breath. Yeah. So if we're attending and we can um, uh, intentionally stay lifted on the out breath, in that way, 
<clears throat> then we don't collapse and gradually end up in this sort of hunched shoulder, you know, what they call camel's end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we can stay uh, comfortable. And then yeah. as far and, and uh, yeah, I love the exercise of expanding your awareness outward. And uh, I, I appreciate it because it seems to uh, prevent a, a such a narrow focus. Right. It just widens the focus. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it makes makes it possible for us to use that um, attention that is sometimes like a flashlight and sometimes like a floodlight and sometimes like a juggler um, flexibly and intentionally again, you know, in the ways that are going to be beneficial. Yeah, yeah I, I like that about the, being flexible with your attention. Yeah. Yeah, we want to be uh, the pilots of it. We don't want it to sort of haphazardly going all over the place, you know, as it is likely to do. <laughs> right. So thank you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Maria. You're muted, Maria. Oh. I know, I know. I just, <laughs> rookie error again, rookie error. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was too busy lowering the hand of the last person. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I love the, I've got a comment on the first bit and then the second bit, but they, they doing the, it always amazes me when I have a guided meditation or whenever I sit, just how much tension I'm not aware of that I have, you know, like I think I'm relaxed, but like I'll be stood by the kettle putting you know, making a cup of tea and I'll just focus on my face and I'll realise I've got the tension in my jaw and, and in my forehead and and just to to bring it back each time. And I love that exercise where you squeeze your hands really tightly and then you, you yeah. extend them and then yeah. you find the natural position, the neutral right. position where, and I think that's what happens throughout our bodies or my body when I'm meditate and I really notice the change and I notice a tension sequence that I have in my shoulder where my shoulder even when I'm meditating it can come up and it tells yeah. me that oh I've, I've lost my presence and right. you know and I, and I send it I send it back down <laughs> you know we come we go but I loved that um where you said to go behind us and then go above us so I, I kind of went behind myself and with the energy coming out from behind me the and just kind of really sitting there in the warmth of that behind myself and then above and then I found myself when you said go outside I sat on the top of my car oh I sat on the roof of my car with my legs crossed and I was just sat there thinking uh -huh. isn't this wonderful I can just be anywhere so then I went to Claudine's sanctuary because I've seen the wonderful photographs that she's posted. <laughs> and, and I was walking through the woods that Claudine had photographed. And it was just such a wonderful place to just be. Well, but, be full, but being fully present in the chair. I was I was with me in the chair in this office in my home. And I was in the the forest. And it was just so lovely that we can go anywhere, can't we? We can just be anywhere. Well, that's really, there's a difference between that projected imagination, like you did with Claudine's place, mm. and awareness. So awareness is actual awareness. So it's not a product of our imagination. Are you actually aware of the sounds of the traffic? Are you actually aware, mm. you know, like, are you, at, how far out are you aware? Are you, if you hear a plane overhead, your awareness mm. is five miles above you. Mm. That makes sense? 
Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. about the experiencing, not about an imagined journey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could hear the traffic, and then yeah. that took me yeah. to the. And I, for some reason, Peg, I don't know why I sat on the top of the car. That was my imagination <laughs> jumping in, wasn't yeah. it? And just yeah. playing with it. You know, I began yeah. to play with it. You know, yeah. <laughs> rather yeah. than just Absolutely. stay with that. You know, attention and you right. know and that's what we do isn't it through meditation we kind of jump off somewhere and exactly. you know and then it's that that coming back to to what is to, to yeah. yeah 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 just the same you know, it's that willingness you know that's part of um the interest that's part of the determination that's part of the confidence is the willingness to return because a lot of times we enjoy our fantasies you know our fantasy worlds are fun Mm, yeah yeah but I love that gap that you get when you're sitting you know that was part of my commitment you know to to sitting and the determination is to to make that gap wider when we're sitting you know to really kind of sit with conditioning you know just to rest with it and just to kind of really expand that space you know th you know I mean it's got to be an onward journey won't it <laughs> you know probably haven't got long enough but you know so that's my commitment is to just keep increasing that space Mm -hmm. you know and and the awareness of the conditioning and to not to to save myself from the to save the world from me and my conditioning <laughs> you know that's yeah that's my yeah. commitment really that's 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 how we save everybody <laughs> absolutely <laughs> joel um well i also uh like ellen really appreciated the reminder of the of the just the imagination of you know a light uh lifting of the uh what is this sternum sure. <laughs> uh because i i often find myself uh with my shoulders really rolled forward mm -hmm. after 50 years of sitting in front of desks and computers and stuff and that 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 is an easeful way of allowing my shoulder blades to meltdown as as the instructions were which i, I really like and I, I that's that ha, that just has been very important in overall relaxation and and i i i just have a sense that the the thing with my shoulders rolling forward is a way of covertly hanging on to some tension and not letting it you know uh, from from myself and that it, and maybe it, also a little bit of self-protection well indeed Indeed, yeah. that's it. So that there's some way in which it's hanging on to some self-protection that is, you know, as as with many things that's that can be maladaptive protective strategies. That it, it if you can lightly hold them and let them go, that 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 can be a, a good thing sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I, I I really appreciate that and have um, uh, been. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot, just the position of my shoulder blades and my chest for months now. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great reminder. It, uh, helps so, me to, it helps me to think about the shoulder blades melting down the back because then I'm not stiffly trying to press them together or shove them down. It's like they're just melting. Right. And, exactly. um, and that's uh, feels very relaxing to me. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think that and I've been experimenting with the I'm going to shove them down aspect. <laughs> Which, you know, that's not that's not the best way. So it's more fun. tension. It just creates more tension. Actually, right. you end up in a battle, kind of a battle. Exactly. 
Yeah, allowing things to relax uh, in this upright. And I think this lifting from the sternum, the other thing I noticed about this is it feels to me like a very dignified position. And, um, and that there's something sweet about that. It's, we're just sitting as Buddha. We're not sitting to become a Buddha. Mm -hmm. We're sitting because this is what Buddhas do. Mm. So that sort of removes the agitation from it. Mm -hmm. I have to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a different state of mind, isn't it? It's almost like, you know, when you go into an interview and you put a suit on to feel more, you know, to, to, to have that different sense of, you know, and like we're sitting, when we sit upright, it's a different state of mind, isn't it? It's an attentive yeah. uprightness, you That's know, right. that, that, that we get from that. That's right. And we, we become, you know, it's um, the, um, I think it was Feldenkrais that said, you know, um, normal is not natural. We've become acclimated, like Joel says, <clears throat> to postures that are really um, not natural um, because of our technologies, because of the way we work, because of chairs, because of all kinds of different reasons. Um, but we can, so, so oftentimes when we sit in Zazen, it feels very unfamiliar when we're sitting upright in this way, but gradually our body can become, um, you know, uh, familiarized with it in a way that it feels more natural and feels more normal. Um, and we can even do that same practice, just walking around and just lifting from the sternum, just walking around. Um, lying down even, we can open the, we want to open this body so that the breath is easy and spacious. And that, um, and then that's reflected in sort of our, our state of mind. That's that easy, spacious and upright mind. Joel? Sorry, I don't think Joel was quite finished when I... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> apologies, apologies, Joel. <laughs> I just had one more thing, which again is something that has been just up in my, something that has been arising in sitting over and over again for me in recent months. And that is, if it, it recalls something that Flint was talking about, I think in inquiry some months ago, but the, the ability to, to have your whole sensorium engaged uh, with contentment and with interest so that you're not looking hungrily for something that's answering some background need of yours or or desire or a question or something like that but really the contentment with things as they are um and i what happens with me is i watch how i slip in and out of that and uh, uh and, and in some ways it has something to do with the way my shoulders you know, want to habitually roll forward and 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 like that. That there's a that there's a way in which there's a physical and mental um, connection that shows me this process of you know habituated physical patterns, habituated mental patterns. Right. And and how and how but and how these alternatives are available all the time. Yes. Yeah. And that they are more and that they are more naturally easeful and and more naturally connected. It, it gives you response flexibility, as they say in psychology, but which we think of as freedom. 
mm -hmm. right, is to know that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a wonderful way to put it. Jay? Yeah, um, actually something just came to me that as we were talking, like, hmm, when we're normally, when we're breathing, right? Like natural breath, natural breathing kind of um, keeps us in the dream, right? Because it's automatic. We don't really think about it. Mm -hmm. And when we're meditating, it takes us out of the dream and we realize that we are not this body and not the mind because we are an observer, right? Because I'm able to get out and look at myself. So then if that is, then I am separate from that. It's all, it's all illusion, right? It's all a dream. And when you meditate, you're actually putting yourself into that divine space, that space of mm, all there is because you're outside of your body observing. Does that make sense to anybody? That's well, what you mean. You aren't outside of anything. You can't be outside of anything in your experience. But I'm watching myself. And that's like I'm watching my form. But that's your consciousness. Hmm. That's your inner consciousness that's doing that. Right. So that's what I'm saying that. Okay. So there's, not a, there's not really a separation. In the mm. Buddhist, and in the Buddhist teaching, um, those things are like, you know, like the stooks, the sheaves of wheat that stand up in a field. And they're all um, aspects, what he calls, what we call aggregates in the Heart Sutra of our experience, form, sensations, perceptions, formations, consciousness. Mm. Um, and um, when you, if you pull those away, there's nothing in the middle. Okay. Yeah. So that was the revolutionary teaching of the Buddha. Yeah. These, um, these uh, heaps of experience that we have. But now I see we're, we're sort of at the end of our time together, which is shocking. Um, and, um, and I think uh, maybe this will provide a little on-ramp for you in this uh, just sitting. And remember when you're sitting in Zazen, you're not a parent, a child, a worker, a teacher, a consumer, or any other role you sometimes inhabit. You know, you're, you have no responsibilities or jobs or problems or projects in Zazen. So you can just allow all that to be set down. It's like returning from a big long road trip and you sit down in a chair and set your suitcases down and you're just sitting there. So you're just still alive and resting in this uh, kind of sky-like mind that's open to everything, all of our experiences. So I guess my last question for you is, can you imagine how such a practice can be deeply relational and a benefit to all of your relationships. Does that seem like a poss possible connection somehow? I don't see any hands, so I'll leave you with that question. Oh, Kim. And Ellen, then Ellen. Kim? You're muted. You're muted, Kim. <laughs> now you're unmuted now. 
the relational uh, part of it for me would be that you would be able to listen. You would be open to that. You wouldn't have a closed mind. Mm -hmm. so. You wouldn't have a lot of preconceptions and projections on the other person and stories and thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's clean. It's a clean connection. Yeah. 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 Mine was essentially like Kim. It was just uh, so uh, you would meet people with such an openness that, uh, you know, not laying your opinions, not having preconceived ideas about what this relationship's gonna be and those kinds of things. Even where you have a long personal history. I mean, the, the yeah. biggest heavy lifting we have to do in our practices with our families, right? Mm -hmm. That's really hard. It's really hard. Yeah, that's, that's advanced practice for most of us. Anyway. I think I think it changes everything, though, doesn't it? Relation-wise, this practice changes everything in your relationship with everyone to everyone, you know, because it, for one, it, it helps you see everything that you are yourself. Like, mm -hmm. I can see everything that I am, and that makes it clearer to see other people as they are as well. And all the triggers we get from the world, from our environment, from people, this practice helps us to sit with it. And to sit with those triggers, to sit with the reactions that arise, it gives us a space for us to sit in. And then we can respond to the world and other in a completely different way and have a choice rather than just react and from, from whatever comes up. We, and that makes such a difference to every, every relationship and every person we come across. We become gentler beings. We become more caring beings, more compassionate and uh, and the space that the between self and other is is the space it's the journey it's the difference isn't it between being this reactionary thing and this responsive caring human being i think the practice is just an incredible way for us to really see the other person and all that they are and have compassion for that as well you know not just to you know not to have reactions to them and to who they are but to have the we're all on the path at different levels at different we're all somewhere on the path at different parts of the path and it's caring for that isn't it it's caring for where each and every one of us are you know along that path yeah i think that's that's a, a beautifully put expression of it and we you know we just um we do our best we're limited beings we have uh, all of our foibles our past history our conditioning everything that we're practicing with that's we're actively practicing with all of that but that's um that's what really is most beneficial i think in my in my experience anyway of anything that i've tried or studied or done so i hope that's uh, a good experience also for you um in this crazy world we're in you know we need more <laughs> people. Just basic sanity it's just <laughs> sanity need more of that yeah. And I, I also want to say, I think that um, it's helpful to remember that we're all on different um, places on the path, you know, so our views are going to be different based on, you know, and to be open and um, receptive of other people's perspective of, you know, where they are on the path. Yeah, I and think that's that, not to say that, you know, and not to get caught up either. 
Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you think you know more. <laughs> and you think you're further ahead and um, that may color. You know what I mean? It's just that we're on different places and each of our perspective is um, is worthy or worthwhile, whatever. You know, it's valuable. Wait. Yeah. Yes. Each, each perspective is valuable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's I think it's quite incredible, though, that we think that um, the, we, this practice will get rid of all of our conditioning, but at first it makes it so much louder. <laughs> I know, that's the irony of it, you know. I, I'm actually getting worse. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just we notice it more. Well, okay, we're going, to, uh, we're going to have to finish, but um, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this journey, and I hope it's been a good uh, experience of gathering some resources and um, strategies for your own practice. Some things you can draw on at times when you need them. You know, so sometimes we, you know, we need to work with meta practice and we can feel it, or sometimes we need to work with concentration practices and we can sense that. So you're really the agent of your own practice. Use what works for you when you need it. And if you have questions about that, by all means, talk to one of our established marvelous and trusted teachers or head students or you know Flint or me so we're uh, I think one of the beautiful things about this practice is the number of people who are standing at the ready to support you in it so that's uh, that's been one of the great uh, gifts for me is realizing that yeah so any last thoughts before we sign off here it's been a, a fun journey for me. It really has been. It's been absolutely wonderful and quite transformative in a lot of ways, in so many ways. It's really given me so much more to for my practice. So thank you very much for that. And Anne, Anne just raised her. I was just going to say, yeah, thank you, Peg, for a very rich, resourceful mm. class, planting a lot of seeds for a future practice and contemplation. Mm. I'll put um, I'll, I'll um, make sure that these books that I recommend are are on the list um, on, on the class page. They really are. The, this Guo Gu book is really quite wonderful. The book on silent elimination, and it's a wonderful complement to Sheng Yen's The Method of No Method, which is what first introduced us to Hong Zhu's work um, on this practice of just silent elimination. This is the place where everything is illuminated just as it is. Um, and so, yeah, I hope you hope you uh, enjoy the class page as are more resources if you wanna delve into any of these more deeply, any of these forms of meditation. Um, and we're happy to talk about them with anybody. Yeah. So take care of yourselves, take good care of your practice. Thank you, Peg. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much.